Hello and welcome to the Sheffield Libraries podcast. My name is Dan. And I'm Alexis. And our guest today is the writer, runner and mum, Helen Mort. In this episode, we're going to be speaking about Helen's short story, Weaning, one of 10 included in the book of Sheffield, this year's Big City Read. We'll also hear about her new book, Never Leave the Dog Behind, a work of non-fiction all about the unbridled joy of heading to the hills with our four-legged friends. Helen Mort, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So we, we were saying just before uh, we came on here, one of the lovely things about, um, about my job is that I get to meet poets, I get to meet writers, we occasionally meet broadcasters, lots of creative people. You, you're a bit different because you do all these things and lots more. Um, so yeah, I just wonder if we might talk a bit about that and, and what a typical week looks like for Helen Moore. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think I am a bit of a um, a jack of all trades, master of none, probably as a writer, because I do everything. Um, but that's also looking at it a different way. It's just because my first love has always been language and, and reading absolutely everything um, from right when I was a kid. And poetry is my first love. That's what I, I sort of learned to 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 do as a practitioner first. And because I think of poetry as being sort of the building blocks of language the foundation of everything I think that so much good writing has an element of the poetic in it so things like having an eye for a good image or for the rhythm of words for the sound of words I I do rightly or wrongly sort of think that poetry gives you um, a transferable skill that you can bring to bear on other forms of writing and for instance when I was writing my novel I was thinking about the, the sound of the language quite a lot and about the construction of the sentences and the rhythm. So I was sort of thinking in the same way as I do when I'm writing a poem. It's just that I was also thinking about story and plot and, and all those other things. And I sort of like to think that I learn something different from every new form that I try. So uh, especially because I'm then new to them, I like to challenge myself. So when I think that, that not, it's a bit arrogant to say that you know how to write a poem. So I'm not sure that anyone ever does, but, um, if I think I'm getting a bit complacent, I like to challenge myself by, like, oh, I've never written a play, what would it be like to do that? What would I learn from that? Because each time you try something new, it's quite humbling because you realise there's a lot you have to learn. So I like to think that they do feed into one another and that I'm primarily a writer, that's my identity. Um, and maybe at some points in my life, I'll do more of one than the other. I might be more of a non-fiction writer or more of a poet, but they'll always be there to express the different ideas, which all suggest, for me anyway, different forms. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about um, your prose. We're going to talk about your short story and we'll talk about your next book, which is non-fiction and some other bits as well. I completely, I'm not the only person um, that will have said to you that they can sort of see the or hear the poet in your prose as well. I mean, certainly the, yeah, the short story, it seems to really come mm-hmm. through. And I think Catherine Taylor, the editor, mentions it in the introduction to the Book of Sheffield as well. Oh, that's really love. That That's definitely what I would, would want people to find in my prose. Um, I'm probably not the best at, you get some writers who are just so brilliant at sustaining a captivating story or their their ability to make characters who feel real 
And I would say that those things uh, may be things that I find more difficult. And um, what I hope that people might like in, in my work is the, the, the kind of poetic detail or the eye for certain details or for looking at things a bit sideways, maybe. So it's really, really nice to hear that. But the short story in the book of Sheffield is an interesting example because um, I knew straight away that that needed to be a short story. That wasn't going to be a poem. It wasn't going to be any. It, it, I sort of knew when I was thinking about it that it had to be expressed in the form of the short story, which to me is a really nuanced, fascinating form and way of working. I suppose a bit... I haven't really thought about this much until now, but I suppose a short story, a bit like a poem, it's kind of like a precision tool. Maybe there's more, I don't know, a novel can be a bit blunter, I suppose, whereas a short story, it's really got to be sharp. And straight it up. has, but at the same time, you can afford to, I mean, I'm generalising now because I'm not saying this isn't true of novels, but you can afford to leave things hanging a bit more, have that ambiguity or that sort of sense of, where did this go or what it's a snapshot sometimes of a particular person or a moment in time or of a place which is what I hope to do with my story for the book of Sheffield because it is about this city um, and a portrait and a love letter to this city I guess so that's what I was trying to do I found when I wrote my novel um, I found that really hard because there's so much that you have to keep in mind and keep referring back to it's a real feat of stamina writing a novel I think and I'm I think people have a different expectation of a novel as well they expect that beginning middle and some kind of conclusion whereas your short story is very much a snapshot in time isn't it of this lady's uh, brief experience well I suppose it probably wasn't brief for her but this experience of her weaning her child and it's a very it's a, a very short sharp snapshot rather than having to tell a complete story which is really interesting I think for me as well, the, the point of that was to make that reflective of the experience because the yes. story, although I've written it in the third person, it is basically autobiography, uh, really. And I wanted to sort of show that lots of the experiences that people have in their lives, maybe it's mental health issues, maybe it's um, motherhood or, or the, the effect that can have on you it's overwhelming at the time and it's all consuming and you find it impossible to conceive of another reality. But at the same time, it's, it's not the whole of you. It's a, it's a snapshot of your life. It's yes. a part of your life. And, and, and it's kind of, so I thought a short story was a really nice way of sort of freezing that, that time in a way and mm. linking it to place as well because I think all of my experiences are mediated by place by Sheffield by the Peak District just because I'm very influenced by where I am um, geographically and so that gave me in a way I think Sheffield and Derbyshire gave me a story because it helped me to make sense of an experience as well um, through thinking about how your identity is 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 connected to where you live mm -hmm. so in a way it was like it was one of those stories that came out in one go and I didn't have to it doesn't always work like that <laughs> but I didn't have to sort of question it too much I think because it was kind of needed to be written um, yeah let's let's talk more about the story um which is I should say is part of well it's one of 10 short stories in the book of Sheffield our city read um this year we've been given away thousands and thousands of books all over town. Your story is called Weaning. It's the first book, the first story in the book. 
And actually, I think because it is so grounded in place and you kind yeah. of name check so many places that the, uh, the, the mum uh, visits and sees across the hills, it's, it's, it's nice to have it right there in the beginning as well. So it's about a new mum. She's, she's clearly going through something pretty traumatic after the birth of a child. And her whole world has sort of turned, turned upside down, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I sort of wanted to... So I'm interested in what you're saying about the place names because that's always what I love in my writing, whether it's poetry, whether it's novels. Um, I, I love the poetry of place names. And I think this city is so rich and, and its surroundings, it's so rich in place names. I, and I'm in love with them. I don't know if it's just because it's where I'm sort of from, from around this area, or if it's that we have particularly poetic names. But I always loved how Richard Hawley... Um, whose music I really admire, um, titles his albums and, and stuff after bits of Sheffield. And that, to me, that's gorgeous because it's just bringing out the poetry that's there already. I think wherever you live, the map is your kind of poetic glossary and um, it's all there for you. You kind of don't have to make that much up because it's there in the fabric of the landscape, in the stories that it holds and in the, the place names. So I sort of wanted to draw on that. But um, yeah, I wanted to, I think there's a lot of really valuable discussion now about uh, postnatal mental health and that's something to be welcomed hugely. Um, but I suppose I wanted to shine a bit of a light on what I think is still a bit of a bit more of a neglected area which was um, the experience of, of stopping breastfeeding as the baby started eating solids and and not having uh, milk anymore for, for those people who do breastfeed and um, for my little boy and for me that was quite early he was only six months old and I had quite a bad reaction to that and I just have this very vivid memory of, of being in a place, it was out on Burbage and I, it didn't feel like my place anymore. I felt disconnected from the landscape and that's so different from how I feel the rest of the time and how I'd felt before that I knew that something was wrong. So I wanted to sort of explore the relationship between I guess mental health and the environment and the countryside and the city and the fabric of the city. Yeah, but also to talk about this thing about weaning that I didn't think um, I hadn't seen. And the more I did research as well online, there really wasn't a huge amount of discussion about it. It was all about the, the, the time after you've just had a baby, the first weeks, the first months, and not so much about further down the line and those changes that you go through. And the the hormone with withdrawal that happens to people who stop breastfeeding, especially if they, they, they do it fairly quickly, um, as just happened in this case, um, and in the case of the person in the story, um, which apparently it's like coming off drugs. It's like coming down off ecstasy. It's this huge sudden, and, and it affects some people who knows why quite badly. And I thought, um, I haven't seen any other short stories um, or, or works of fiction particularly about this phenomenon and so I kind of wanted to, to write about that as well because I know for me when I read something that reflects an aspect of my experience at a difficult time even if it's not directly even if it's not about exactly the same thing at all for me that's um, a comfort and it's a source of solace or inspiration so I thought maybe it could uh, work like that for other people regardless of whether they'd had that experience or not um, yeah I mean I had no idea this was a thing you 
yeah, you see um, and hear lots of advice, and, and I think in some cases pressure, sometimes pressure that isn't all that healthy on, on mums to breastfeed and that sort of thing, or to not breastfeed, depending on where you are and who you're surrounded by. Um, but yeah, I don't think, I, I never heard anything about kind of the, the back end of it and what happens and what happens to your body and what that might feel like. Well, I went searching for advice about uh, weaning and about what happens. Oh, sorry, specifically about stopping breastfeeding. I think weaning is about the process of them having the, the solid food. But um, and most of the advice that I could find was just about how perhaps you didn't need to stop or how you could keep doing it and, and fit it into the rest of your life. And there wasn't very much or, or it was about how the baby might find it difficult to stop. Well, actually, my baby didn't find it difficult at all. I found it difficult. So um, I, I suppose um, that was something I, I, yeah, I think as writers, a more general point is that we are often looking for those little pockets of experience that are particular to us, but we, that we think might have a universality in it. And I should point out as well that I'm talking about the autobiographical elements of this story, but a lot of what I write is not at all autobiographical. And, and I like to think of writing as an act of empathy as well and that you can imagine yourself into other people's situations even if you haven't experienced them directly yourself so it's it demands empathy from the reader because they're trying to get into the head of the person the narrator or the author or both and writing is an act of empathy from the writer sometimes as well because they're trying to understand the world a bit better or other people's um... yeah yeah well because I, I i was a reader in this relationship and i'm a bloke so i have no experience of breastfeeding i i, I have children um and so i kind of experienced all this stuff but from from another angle but yeah you know the the experience of bodies changing and in this case like memories being lost and stuff like that yeah it has to be that sort of act of empathy I suppose it was incredibly immersive I I thought and I, and I think also just the topic I'd read a blog post about uh, from a lady who'd stopped breastfeeding and, and said all the same things that you put in your story all the difficulties and also the struggles with the child not understanding why she no longer could breastfeed and and I think it was really interesting reading that blog post in conjunction with your story and how emotionally immersive your story was but but also how it reflects just mental health and how that just messes with your head and how it does detach you from the world and the things you love and because they become not not important but you lose them don't you I think when you go through any mental health struggles definitely mm. and I think there's the stories in the book of Sheffield besides my own that explore those mm. things in a variety of different ways so the, there are pieces that are like mine a bit more maybe based on memory and personal experience but then there's others where someone's um, imaginatively occupied another space another character and um, there's there's uh, one story that's about someone who's an asylum seeker in Sheffield like moving through the city and so kind of I think there's a variety of perspectives and that's that's the that's kind of the beauty of it that it's brought together all these different takes on 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 what this city is which is a very eclectic, brilliant place to live, in my opinion. But that's because that's yeah. my experience, you know, for other people. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting because you're right. And they, they, there, are, there are some very different stories in there coming from, from, from really different angles. And yet I think there is a constant, you know, the landscape runs through it. Um, the hills, the rivers, the, the place names. There, there is something which ties it all together. 
Are you you going to read a bit to us? Sure, I'll read a little bit from the the beginning of the story. Uh, weaning. She was losing the names of places. Every time she dropped a feed, let the milk in her breasts come, then lessen, another part of the city disappeared. Someone once said Sheffield was a dirty picture in a golden frame. She was forgetting both the town and the gritstone encircling it. One bright Sunday, she walked out past the Norfolk Arms and the black clutch of the plantation. The baby sat upright in the heather with his chubby legs splayed, shoving strawberries into his mouth and letting the juice trickle down his chin. She ate nothing, tried to count the green tower blocks in a line of vision, gleedless. She said it out loud so she wouldn't forget. Her husband phoned, his voice steady with concern. Where are you? We've gone for a walk. Where? The place where I climb, the big rocks beside the car park. Later, she learned that it was Burbage. They had a map in the house inherited from her father-in-law and she circled it in biro, marked a neat X. And as the kind of, as the time goes on in the story, more and more places start to disappear and it's in that the map of the city changes and the story sort of explores that, that process. But there is a redemptive ending. It's not all doom and gloom. Fantastic. So, Let's move on to your next book because your your next work of non-fiction is just about to be published. Mm -hmm. So never leave the dog behind. So something completely different, although again, so sort of, very much sort of for pulling on landscape, I suppose, for for inspiration. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Sure. I mean, and that's a great, I mean, running through all of my work is an obsession with the effect that place has on us. I think that's, I don't really write about much else, to be honest. Um, and, um, uh, I, and I find it endlessly fascinating and, and continue to sort of find more and more in that in different ways. Um, yeah, this is a book, it's um, about... I guess it's about why we love to take dogs into the hills with us, into the countryside with us so much, um, mainly thinking about mountains. Um, and it's a series of essays. Um, so interviews with, with famous mountaineers like Chris Bonington, who are dog lovers, um, accounts of, of uh, studying search and rescue dogs around the UK, fascinating work that they do to keep us all safe in the hills, these amazingly intelligent animals. Um, things like going off to Switzerland to walk with St Bernard's, I got to walk a St Bernard on a lead, which was an amazing experience. And the history of that relationship between us and between um, the species that we've, we've grown to call man's best friend, how that works. Um, but woven through it all, as well as some more personal reflections on becoming a dog owner and a dog lover myself um, while living in the Lake District and exploring the hills there. And I was really afraid of dogs when I was growing up and it was only getting a dog that sort of helped me to overcome that fear. So there's an account of that running through it as well. And what happens if you invite a dog into your house? In this case, um, nervous, whip it with separation anxiety <laughs> from a rescue shelter. Um, so it's a mix of the essay and the, the more personal essay, I guess. And I like to think of it as um, the way the book's structured is it's kind of like a dog following different scents, going wherever its nose takes it and following quite a meandering path, um, but guided by some strong instinct all the way through. So 
for the, the sake of our listeners, we're recording this right now on Zoom so we can see each other. And I'm looking at Alexis's face and she's got a big smile. I know yeah. that she really wants a dog. We're, bu- we're buying a house currently just so I could get a dog, basically. <laughs> but my mother-in-law has just um, got a puppy and we, we walk um, him at the weekends. And the joy that we get from taking him for walks. I, I, I mean, I've always loved dogs. I, I, like you, actually had quite a bad fear of all dogs and cats. Um, and it was only getting a, a kind of meeting dogs and then eventually getting a cat that got me over my general fear of, of animals. So I can completely identify with that feeling. but. I never expected the joy that taking Teddy, my mother-in-law's dog, for a walk would give me. And I'm desperate to go walking in the peaks with him because, the, and, I, and I can't even explain what it is. There's just something about walking a dog and, and I can't put my finger on it. So it, I'm really looking forward to reading your book and finding out your experience of that. What, what breed of dog do you want to get? Do you have a particular or is it more... I've, I've, I love all dogs and I've swapped my choice of breeds over and over again. Um, Teddy is a Cavapuchon, so I think we'll probably look to get some kind of doodle type dog as well. Um, because they're These quite are just active. words to me. They love walking. Cav- this means nothing. <laughs> what? It's a great name. Yeah, yeah. It's a Cavalier King Charles, a Poodle and a Bichon Frise. So there's wow. bits of everything in there. Um, but he's just a big fluffy teddy bear but he loves to walk and and there's nothing lovelier than letting him off the lead and watching him just sprint around the fields that we take him to and that kind of thing so um yeah I think there's a real interesting connection between humans and dogs that has well it's now become part of their DNA hasn't it and they've actually evolved to be with us and and it's incredible the bond we have with them Something that came up time and again when I was talking to people for this book was the idea that dogs somehow are like, they're a bit like our, um, they're like versions of ourselves Mm. that that don't have to conform to the things that we have to conform to. So there's something really great about being in the hills, specifically with a dog, and watching how, how the dog moves through that landscape and the freedom that it has. And kind of, it can go where we can't, and it can, it can immerse itself. Again, I think it's about immersion in that landscape in a way that we can't. And the joy that we get from seeing that is amazing. I heard people say time and time again that they preferred being out with a dog to other people. Um, quite a lot of people prefer dogs to people. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting. It depends on if it can also be a fraught relationship. Like um, if if you're a fan of sight hounds or whippets, like I am, actually letting them off the lead um, yeah. when you're out is 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 sometimes um, a bit of a dicey thing to do because yes. they've got quite a strong prey drive. So yeah, there, there's that side of it as well. But mostly it's the unbridled joy of just seeing them run uh, mm. faster than we can, covering that distance. And I think it makes you think like a dog when you take a dog for a walk. Mm. You notice things that you wouldn't ordinarily as well. Mm. Quite similar to walking with a baby. You become aware of different things when you're walking with, with a child. You're trying to stop them eat things off the pavement for starters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you see everything that's on the pavement <laughs> definitely looks down yeah children. was there a big leap from going from writing poetry to prose short stories to then doing a non-fiction book is there are there any elements of that writing in your non-fiction or is it a completely different style of writing um well i think that all so if you think about novels um like for me my novel drew on a lot of elements of my experience and of my life 
and equally the non-fiction that I write always draws on elements of fiction because sometimes to tell a story, because you're still telling a story usually in non-fiction, um, to tell it in the most, what I'd consider sort of emotionally authentic way, which is truest to the feeling behind the experience or the impulse behind it, which I think is how, our, how, we, how our brains work anyway. We, we keep the memories that we keep are, are changed, literally changed and, and, and overlaid with the emotion that imprinted them on your brain. And, you know, you can study the stuff about trauma and things like that really illustrates how that, that, that works, how that's literally true. Um, but, but so I'm never afraid of, 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 um, I will keep as many details as, as I can in there, but, but of sort of having to be imaginative in the way that I tell my own story if I'm doing something that I consider to be life writing I don't do that with other people's <laughs> so, obviously, like the interviews and things is it at verbatim as people yeah. spoke to me but um I think I don't think they're as dissimilar as you might think the mm. kind of fiction and non-fiction and as I say poetry is always there if you love mm. the sound of words and the rhythm of language that's always going to be there in how you think and the patterns of thought that that create the the prose as well mm. Definitely. Some of the fiction I've read is is more um, incredible stories than I've ever read in some fiction. I mean, they're unbelievable. And sometimes there's a lyric quality. I mean, you think particularly about people who write about place and about nature, um, whether that's rural or urban, you can get some beautiful, beautiful um, poetic writing. I've just been reading this book, um, The Book of Trespass by Nick Hayes, and a lot of the prose in that, there's these gorgeous sentences, um, including some great stuff about dogs, actually. He describes the way dogs sniff, um, sniff around as being, um, uh, for sense, as, as being like us scanning social media. And he <laughs> yeah. describes the dogs as checking their wee-mails. Uh, they go out and walk. I thought that was absolutely... <laughs> Fantastic. Would you like to read a bit from from the book? Sure. I'll um, I'll again, I'll I'll read a, a bit from the beginning, if I may. The introduction. July eighteen o five. A Cumbrian shepherd stands to rest, hands on his back, breathing ragged, beside the poor shaped expanse of red tarn, high on the eastern flank of Helvellyn. Glancing up towards striding edge and cat's eye cam, he's distracted by a high, excited yapping. The wind carries the sound to him before he sees the source of it. A small dog, perhaps a spaniel, is running in rings and flattening itself against the ground. He moves towards it. The dog is circling a mound of rags. On closer inspection, he can see that they are clothes, a good jacket. Then he starts abruptly, shivers. Beside the jacket lies a skeleton, too long, too large to be the body of a sheep. A gold watch glints in the grass nearby. Earlier that year, the Manchester artist Charles Goff had set out on a cool Lake District morning to walk over Helvellyn. He had no specialist clothing or equipment, only the company of his faithful dog, Foxy. Ordinarily, he might have found a guide to steer him safely past the hazards of striding edge, but the local militia were out training for the Napoleonic Wars. And besides, Goff was known as a venturesome spirit, a proud risk taker. He set off into the morning with a spring in his step, but Goff never arrived in Grasmere. Three months on, the only records of his climb were the clothes and bones the shepherd stumbled across and the remarkable resilience of Foxy. 
Um, so I'm interested in that story, which is the story that the, or the legend that the book opens with, uh, partly because the, the romantic poet seized on this story as a kind of example of the dog's faithfulness, that the dog stayed by its master's side, even in death, and the, the, the pathos and poetry of that. Um, the real story is, it count, is likely that, that the dog had eaten his master. <laughs> I think Goth fell from a ridge and sustained fatal injuries, and then Foxy basically ate him in order to survive. Um, but I'm very interested in why we prefer the image of the noble dog and the rescue dog over the, the sort of um, uh, maybe, maybe slightly grim, but, but kind of very natural truth and, and how we make dogs into heroes in the mountains. And, and they are, they, do, they are very heroic as well. Um, but there's part of that narrative, I think, that really interests me about how we see our dogs and how we how we project lots of human qualities onto them as well. Oh, sometimes better than human. Um, Rilke said that dogs, uh, in dogs we'd created a soul for which there is no heaven. And it just always breaks my heart. We said <laughs> these loyal dogs that have a soul that's very pure. Um, and yeah, interested in all those kinds of things. That's the mega line. Um, you, you're talking, we, well, we did an event a few weeks back, um, which was brilliant, hundreds viewed that and the feedback was amazing. You're doing another event for Off the Shelf talking about this book? Yeah, that's right. That's in, that's on October. I check that I'm not saying. People can look it up. They can look it up. It's, it's on October the, uh, the 19th. <laughs> And uh, yeah, that's going to be broadcast. I don't know if there'll be a dog there with me. I don't. I might. I might see what I can do. But you need a. You do need a sleepy sort of dog for events. Like that. <laughs> are very good because they're quite cat-like dogs. Um, so um, we'll see how that one goes. Excellent. Um, and when when is the book published? The book's uh, published. Well, the the pre-orders are starting to go out now, actually, and then it'll be. Um, It'll be on mainstream sort of sale in the start of October. It's published by Vertebrate, Sheffield's very own uh, wonderful outdoor specialist publisher. And you can find more details about it on their website. You can get signed pre-orders, I believe. That's what I've done can, yeah, directly just, from Vertebrate. I just went and signed loads and loads of books the other day. And hopefully it'll be available in local bookshops as well, because that's always my preferred place to get books, especially Rhyme and, Rhyme and Reason is around my yes bookshop and I absolutely love it so um yeah hopefully there'll be places where you can get it from as well so as well as writing you're broadcasting as well um you're on the radio quite a bit now and and yeah I mean it's it's really wonderful to me that I've started doing some radio work for uh, mostly for radio four radio three I do some essays for radio which is a beautiful format for a poet because it's an essay but that you're going to hear out loud. So again, it draws on the poetry of language, the inherent poetry of language and of place names in a way that I love. Um, yeah, I grew up, so I was an only child and I grew up with the radio as my companion quite a lot of the time. Um, not in a bad way, I'm not trying to get, <laughs> get the violins out. I had a very loving home <laughs> and loving parents, but um, I did just spend a lot of time on my own which and bored, which, which is, I think, really important and kind of helps you to become creative perhaps but the radio was my friend I absolutely loved listening to the radio even if it was stuff that was much too old for me to understand or I just love the sound of language and I've always dreamed of um yeah if I'm completely honest my dream would be to have some kind of um 
show that I hosted on the radio, <laughs> kind of art show or something like that. I don't I know. I think we'd all like that too, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the Helen Mort show. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. And um, so, it, yeah, it does feel like the realisation of a childhood dream to get this little taste of, of doing things like interviewing people on Radio 4 or writing these essays and performing them. I love the medium. I love the intimacy of radio. And I enjoy... Um, I just enjoy uh, crafting things for people to hear. So one day, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe it'll come true and I'll have my own show of some kind, but uh, probably distantly in the future, if ever. But um, I do love doing um, anything for, for radio and, and particularly, I think poetry, as I say, is well suited to, to the airwaves. There isn't enough fiction work, actually. I mean, I know like, the likes of Radio 4 do plays and that kind of thing, but actually there's very little fiction, it seems, on radio at the minute but radio is such an important medium particularly right now where we're restricted as to what we can do lots of people are struggling reading because they, they're not in the headspace for it so I've, I've been listening to radio and podcasts and all sorts of things like that because I can easily hear things and switch off exactly I think you're so right it's, it's experiencing a bit of a surge in popularity at the moment because people yeah. are realizing the benefits of it but also actually I'm noticing more and more coverage for the arts on for poetry for fiction and so with a bit of luck we're going to see more of that in the future I'm about to go and do a festival in a couple of weeks called contained strong language which is um which is it's been in Hull for the past few years it's going to be the Lake District this year um, and that's brilliant because it brings this festival of spoken word and of poetry um, and of new writing to the BBC over the over the course of this weekend so uh, more of that is always to be celebrated and more positive creative writing on them as well. Mm. So I guess that's that's what you're you're up to next and looking Further, is there anything else that we, we should be looking out for? Uh, yeah, I mean, you asked me right at the beginning and I failed to answer your question. Like, what a typical week was for me. Um, and actually, a lot of it, it's so different from depending on what else is going on at the time, what I've just done. Uh, often a typical week, like, uh, to be honest, since the lockdown started in March, a typical week for me has involved no writing at all. Um, I'm just not, I've just had a, a year where I've, for various reasons, childcare, um, the the kind of anxiety and exhaustion that I know has affected a lot of people through this lockdown has meant that I've just been doing things that I needed to do to pay the bills rather than focusing on the artistic side of things but that switches and I might have other times when I'm quite immersed in a writing project so um for instance I've just just got back to my my next upcoming book which is not coming out until 2022, I think. Uh, so there's a little while to wait for that one, but it's um, it's another non-fiction. It's, it's um, rather than essays, this is a whole kind of, a whole, my first like full length kind of non-fiction book. And it's about uh, motherhood and mountaineering, um, looking at the life of the late great mountaineer, Alison Hargreaves, who was from Belper and who died in 1995 on K2, um, when her children were very small. And then also the death of her son, uh, Tom Ballard, who was a mountaineer in his own right, and who died just uh, last year. I think it was last, yes, it was early tw 2019 on Nanga Parbat. So um, I'm sort of exploring, charting that, mother-son relationship and their shared love of mountains and thinking about how my own perspective on going to the mountains 
not that I was ever doing uh, feats like like they were doing, but how that's changed since becoming a, a mum. And so it also links to some of the things in the, the weaning story. And I've been revisiting some of that as well. Um, I guess how your sense of what your body is capable of changes uh, with motherhood in both positive and negative ways, perhaps, and how you you um, rebuild your connection with landscape with adventure um whilst making your your child and your your changed position as a mother part of that as well so there's loads and loads of threads to unravel and it's fascinating um writing about this kind of stuff that was one of the aspects i found most interesting about the live event we did with you when you spoke about about the lady that you talk, you're writing your book about and and the the motherhood and how that impacts your life and, and the thing that you're interested in and mountaineering and all that kind of I thought it was fascinating so it's really exciting to hear you write a book about that oh it's just very it's interesting long been I've long uh, kind of identified with her which mm. sounds not thing because I didn't know her I've got no right in a way to, to think that or to write about her but um even not just about the climbing, but the way that she writes about her life as a mountaineer reminds me of my life as a writer. And there's that kind of, there's a lot of similarities in the, the focus that you need in order to do that and the selfishness of it, and, but how it's a strange mix of selfishness and generosity at times, um, doing something on behalf of others, but also doing it for yourself. Um, and I've, yeah, I've long thought that, that the poems that I've written that were addressed to her to Alison Hargreaves weren't enough to contain all the things that that um that I thought came up from it and also of course going back to the age-old thing that um when fathers die equally tragically in the mountains the way it's reported is quite different so we we often learn yeah. that for a father towards the end of the piece rather than in the headline yes. uh, whereas if a mother dies in the mountains that is absolutely the first thing you're going to know it's going to be mum of two dies in tragic accidents so just sort of looking at what shifted what stayed the same but also um hopefully it's quite a, a, a considered approach to these things like you know confronting the fact that actually as a mother my perspective has changed on on things like like that it, it just for myself since there are things that i don't want to do and um but but how complicated those decisions can be and how much can can be behind them and how difficult it is to judge somebody else's choices i suppose um yeah well we'll look out for it um helen it's been great talking to you as as always huge thank you Absolutely. for joining us you've got a website where people could visit and discover a bit more about you and your work Yes, I do. It's just uh, www.helenmort.com. Very unoriginal. <laughs> and I'm also on Twitter as at Helen Mort. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Sheffield Libraries podcast, the new place to discover the stories, both fact and fiction, that we think deserve to be shared. We hope you'll join us again. Thank you.